Well, it's been a few weeks since I've been with you, together with you in the book of Matthew. If I recall the last time I was here um, teaching, I saw that Pastor Matt covered quite a, a bit more ground than I've been covering, and so I want to give a shout out there and say thank you, brother. Um, we were t- together in chapter 8 when we were together last, and we looked at verses 18 through 22. Um, and we saw in 18 through 22, and I'm going to make a connection with some things. We're going to skip a rock across Matthew here just a little bit to catch us up for me and for you to get us all kind of mentally on the same page because the, the uh, pericope that we're working on this morning in chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, it's a very unique and uh, it's a... It's a um, it's a dense, uh, Jesus communicates a lot. Matthew records Jesus' words. He, he, he says a, a, a whole lot in very few words. And I think that there are some connecting points to where Jesus is going when he speaks to the disciples of John in this pericope this morning, this unit of thought this morning that uh, having a little bit of running commentary, just a little contextual touches could be helpful for. So you remember again, when we were together last in 18 through 22, uh, there was those two individuals who uh, proclaimed their interest and desire to follow Jesus and said, wherever he went, remember that? And so um, there's Jesus kind of quickly informed them that there was going to be sacrifice involved in one's decision to following him, that it wasn't going to be an easy path, an easy road. There would be cost involved, perhaps the cost of walking away from one's family and one's inheritance, etc. We saw that in those two passages. And nowhere throughout the rest of the Gospels of the New Testament do we see that those two individuals ended up following Jesus. As a matter of fact, the, the evidence would indicate that they chose otherwise. And the, the next section following that where Pastor Matt picked up in his preaching uh, was we see Jesus getting into a boat with his disciples to go to the other side of the lake for some much-needed uh, R&R from a very long day of ministry. There was a great storm on the sea, and it says that the boat was covered with waves. And when you think about who was in the boat with Jesus, these very experienced fishermen, these were the men from Matthew chapter 4 who left their family business, dropped their fishing nets. These were fishermen. They were used to being on the sea. They were used to being on water. But we see that they were very afraid of losing their lives, which lets us know that this must have been a seriously bad storm that they had encountered with Jesus that night as they were crossing to the other side for some much-needed rest. And I can't help uh, but think back um, at, at that moment to chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, uh, where Jesus talked about great storms that would come upon people in their lives. And the foundation upon which a person's house was built, the house being analogous to a person's life, the foundation would be that which would sustain them. And uh, in this instance, where Jesus seems to be teaching uh, these disciples about um, the, the importance of the, the message he had just left with those other two guys. Remember, he just told these other two guys, that if you want to follow me, it's, it's going to come at a high cost. You really need to consider the cost. It's not going to be easy. And immediately we see these disciples in a life circumstance that is not easy. It's very challenging, and their lives, literally, from their perspective, are uh, at stake. Um, the winds and the waves that came crashing in on them that night made them very afraid. And Jesus, um, then, after they aroused Jesus from his sleep, um, knowing probably how severe those storms were, he uh, gently and kindly uh, calls them cowardly men of little faith. Ha- having seen everything that you've, you men have seen me do, did, did you forget about the, uh, the leprous man who was instantaneously gone from very severe leprosy to being made cleansed? Did you forget about the time when we went through the Decapolis and people were coming to me and I was healing multitudes of people all the time? 
Did you forget about the teaching of my sermon just the night before, the day before when we were on the mount? And as great as that storm was that crashed in on their lives, Jesus kindly referred to them as cowardly men of little faith. If we talk with this kind of language today, we're thought of as being harsh and cruel and unkind, aren't we? Yet when the waves and winds of life come crashing in on us, how are we responding? Are we responding as men of faith, as women of faith? Do we look at difficulties in life with great hope and say, I can't wait to see how God's going to resolve this one? Or do we fear for our lives, our very flesh, in trying to cling on to the things of this earth that we so dearly love? And cherish. We need to learn the lessons that Jesus is in the training of his 12 and the training of the 12 of what ministry is going to be like whenever he goes away. There's some lessons that he's teaching them and it seems that Jesus was teaching his disciples here very early on the necessity of complete trust in him. Complete trust in him come what may. Amen? We need to get our hearts aligned with that when our circumstances, our lively circumstances come crashing in and we see not how we're going to perhaps survive. Now, that's kind of metaphorically speaking with regard to their circumstance, which was on a real boat, on a real sea, with real winds and real waves crashing in on them, right? But your real circumstances, though they look different than this, they sure feel an awful lot the same as if, how am I going to be able to survive this? We need to learn, as the disciples were learning, to have complete trust in the Lord. And then as the text moves on, it's the very next morning, Matthew tells us of how they, he and his disciples were then met by two extremely violent, demon-possessed men of the tombs. Now, when Pastor Matt preached that, did you, did you try to walk in their shoes just for a minute? Did, did you feel a little bit of fear? I don't know about you. Um, I'm t- I, t- I tried to walk in their shoes for a bit, and I was thinking about meeting two extremely violent, demon-possessed men of the tombs. I don't think I'm walking up and saying, hey, what's up, bro? How you doing, man? You know, dapping them up. I think I'm probably going to be a little bit more... We, these people are dangerous, and we might need some protection from them. Jesus, can you do what you just did the night before on the boat? We, but we don't see that this time. We see they're met with uh, a very uh, glorious opportunity to do ministry in the life of following Jesus. The very next day, uh, these two extremely violent, dangerous men... Um, one might say that following Jesus isn't a spectator sport. What do you think? It can get messy. Uh, I think sometimes American Christianity makes doing ministry for Jesus like so soft that we, uh, we sometimes forget the messiness that comes in real life in dealing with people and their hurts and their pains and their, the things that afflict them, etc., etc., etc. I don't know about you, but listen, I see demon possession all around us today in our culture. How about you? No, these demons aren't causing them to froth at the mouth and to throw themselves into the fire. We might, that might be a little bit too noticeable or obvious in our day and in our culture. So it seems to me that what we do in our culture is we have found ways to medicate what truly might be demon possession. I'm not going to delineate on those things. I'm just going to allow you to, the opportunity to think about some that you perhaps might think that, might, that bill might fit. But what that means is these aren't the very people that we're to shy away from in, with regard to doing ministry. I don't see any of them here on the Lord's Day because on the Lord's Day the church gathers The the Lord's Day is intended for believers, the church, to gather and to be strengthened and encouraged in their faith because when you get out there in the real world, it gets hard. It it looks like this. 
It looks like a run-in with two extremely dangerous demon-possessed men. I've talked to David Nienheis on more than one occasion on Saturdays. The individuals that he's coming up with downtown, some of those homeless people and the things they do and say, it very well could be demon possession. I don't know. I'm not God. All, I, all, all I'm hearing is stories told by David. And I, can, I could elucidate on some other situations where you might see modern-day possession, satanic pos- obs- obs- uh, oppression in people's lives, causing them great harm because that's what the father of lies is all about still kill and destroy lives and that's what ministry can look like it's not again it's um it's not for the faint of heart and again we we didn't see in this example here of these disciples being called cowardly this time but what we do see is that the people in the region of the gadarenes um, were so thankful that two of their men had been cured of what possessed them. They were so grateful and so thankful for the ministry that they pleaded with Jesus sternly and for his disciples to leave and to never come back. More concerned about swine than they were their own flesh and blood. So not much appreciation for those following Jesus who are attempting to do ministry in Jesus' name. We don't see a whole lot of appreciation. As a matter of fact, we see no appreciation whatsoever in that case. Now, again, don't forget, Jesus is doing what? Jesus is here teaching the disciples how to become fishers of men, right? Follow me, I'll make you become fishers of men. So Jesus is in the training of the twelve of what... Ministry is going to look like whenever he's away to be fishing for men because that's what he came to do is to seek and save that which is lost. He didn't come to, to save the righteous but the sick, those who were in need and recognized their need. And it seems that Jesus is getting them ready for this reality of fishing uh, for men and that it's going to be hard, that fishing is hard. And oftentimes... A lot of times it's not appreciated. And that those who choose to make that decision, it does come at great cost to those who follow Jesus in order to fish for men. So then as we continue in our passage through Matthew's teaching to get to what he tells us in verse 14 through 17 today that is very significant. When you first get into chapter 9... It seems that Matthew records uh, particular encounters that Jesus had with various religious leaders, or you might say religious groups of leaders and people, all of whom were not appreciative, all of whom were not receptive of Jesus and of his new messages. The preaching and the teaching that he was doing in the synagogues every week and the teaching and preaching that he was doing. And in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9, that's where we see Jesus' healing ministry of that paralytic. Uh, Jesus uh, there in that passage is confronted by these scribes in 9.3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man blasphemes. That's how much they appreciated Uh, his ministry, having just healed this paralytic man. Um, And the reason for such harsh criticism, it seems from the text, is the fact that Jesus claimed that he had the ability to forgive sins. He claimed to have the ability to do something that only God could do. And so in order to demonstrate to them and to prove to them that he did have such authority to forgive sins and to do something that only God could do, he would do something that only God could do. And that was, he says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to pick up your bed mat and walk home? Well, obviously, anybody's going to recognize the hardest thing to do would be to say to a paralytic to pick up your mat and go home. And so Jesus does that. And the man picks up his mat. Instantaneously healed. And he goes home. Again, this is, if you think about this, this is deep into Jesus' teaching ministry by now. This is deep into his ministry, having already taught in the synagogues for weeks, preached messages of the gospel of the kingdom uh, which he had just done uh, the day before and so many countless people have been healed jesus and his message here are now being charged with blasphemy 
Not much appreciation for gospel ministry in those who perhaps decide they want to follow him, again, demonstrating to his disciples the high cost of doing ministry with him and following him, what that's going to look like. And then the second particular encounter that Jesus had that same day is with Pharisees. So first with the Sadducees and the next was with Pharisees who too, like these scribes, know nothing but disapproval of Jesus and his new message. In verses 9 through 13, Matthew in, the, in, that, in that third person voice that he uses there uh, records his own encounter with Jesus and of his conversion, that of his becoming a follower of Jesus and, uh, and I love how Matthew demonstrates immediate, think about this, how he demonstrates immediate obedience to Jesus' lordship here. Uh, do, you, do you not see that? And did, you not, did you not like that? I love the way he does this. Look again at verse 9 here. And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said, follow me. And he stood up and followed him. I love that. Uh, it didn't take Matthew a year or two or three or five or ten to perhaps decide that following Jesus in terms of obedience was what was meant in discipleship. Matthew immediately knew that when Jesus said, hey, you want to be a follower of mine, you want to be a disciple of mine, he had to pick up his stuff and follow. He recognized that there was a, a call of obedience that Jesus was putting on the lives to those whom he was calling to be followers of him and that following him was not going to necessarily be difficult. We sometimes struggle with that. We sometimes struggle with understanding the clearly implied and obviously demonstrable through the epistles, the, the need for obedience and the need for Lord, the lordship of Christ over us in all things. Jesus, when he called Matthew, Matthew got that. And did you notice what happened immediately after that? It's what I kind of think of as um, really quick evangelistic activity. When, when, when you first came to faith in Christ, were you not like your hair on fire and just uber excited about this new, I have been saved from my sins I've been given streets of gold, not the hellfire forever and ever. There's a, there's, there was a palpable excitement that came with this, and it seems we see this. I mean, they immediately uh, go from this situation of Matthew getting saved and um, going over to Matthew's house and Jesus being introduced to Matthew's friends, fellow tax collectors and sinners. And they're sharing a meal together. Again, that's pretty quick um, evangelistic activity on Matthew's part. But yet here again, we get confronted with disapproval from these Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, those who were really fastidious in God's word and wanting to make certain that God's word was followed. And not only God's word, but also their manly traditions, the traditions that they had in, put in place as well. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Again, following Jesus isn't going to be easy, and there isn't going to be a lot of warm appreciation from many people on either side of the religious aisle in truly following the man from Galilee. We saw the people in the region of the, uh, of the uh, demon-possessed men, no appreciation, leave. Scribes called him a blasphemer. The Pharisees, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in our text this morning, there's another group. Somewhat unexpected, it would seem, who are also questioning Jesus and his obvious breaking from cultural religious traditions. This group was known as the disciples of John, as in John the Baptist. And it seems that this group that's referred to as John's disciples um, chose not to listen to John's admonition to them. Whenever John, in essence, kind of said to them, um, hey, I need to, to decrease, and he's the one that must increase. 
It's like John implicitly was pushing his disciples and moving his disciples over to be followers of Jesus. And we see uh, that there was this group that was still uh, conflicted with that understanding and holding to their cultural religious traditions in their day and are thus here challenging Jesus and his disciples for why they're doing what they're doing. We see this in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, you perhaps again remember that after John's imprisonment, he was pushing his disciples over to follow Jesus. We see this most clearly in John's Gospel, chapter 3, 25 through 30. Therefore, there arose a debate between John's disciples and a Jew about purification, verse 26, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, that would be Jesus, to whom you have borne witness, Jesus, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven, a very good perspective with regard to ministry. I think on a little sidebar here, Verse 27 is a great place for all of us to, to be in, in whatever capacity of ministry we find ourselves in. Um, Jerry Strader used to tell me that this was what he called the open hand kind of commitment to God, that you just ha- were to have open hands before God, and God's free to put things in. He freely gives, and he can freely take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sound familiar? Job? Um, you can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. But we also know that God's free to take away. But it's whenever we try to clench onto something and make it ours, whether it's a ministry, a position, whatever it may be, a particular person. And sometimes when God has to wrench our fingers back out of that grip that we had on them, it becomes very painful because discipline can be painful for the moment. But it should yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness that's intended to come to those who are God's children. John had a very healthy perspective of this. John, his ego didn't get involved. He wasn't looking for, he wasn't looking for the praise or the applause of men. John is saying, listen, that's great. Jesus is baptizing more. That's great. He's going to say here at the, in verse 30, he must increase. I must decrease. John got it. Notice verse 28. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. So clearly, John's communication with his disciples, these disciples of John that we're going to see in Matthew, John communicated with them that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Notice, but I have been sent ahead of him. A clear indication from John to his disciples that Jesus is the him, the Christ, the Messiah. And then in verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so here in Matthew's gospel and later even in the book of Acts after Pentecost in Acts chapter 19, we see that there are still groups of John's disciples who, kn- who knew nothing more of the faith than that of John's baptism, which tells us that they didn't heed John's words here about Jesus being the Christ. And it seems from their conversation here in Matthew's gospel, these gospels of John, these disciples of John, that these um, These individuals, again, were only familiar with their traditional Jewish traditions and ceremonies. And that's the very area in which they are challenging Jesus and his disciples with. The tradition of fasting. We know from Luke chapter 18 that the Pharisees fasted twice weekly. Which, by the way, was not something that was prescribed from the Old Testament. You perhaps remember back in Matthew chapter 7, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, when we... Jesus was talking about fasting. We kind of look more specifically in the Old Testament. There's only one occasion in which fasting was required of the nation, which would have been on the, on the day of, of uh, atonement, a day of fasting. But here we see that there's a prescription that has been made now in, in the traditions of men, and we see this very plainly in Luke 18:12, where the Pharisees were fasting twice weekly, and so John's disciples are saying, why don't your disciples fast like us and like the Pharisees, i.e. twice 
weekly. Jesus, when teaching his followers and soon-to-be followers about fasting, he said to them that you need to fast in a way so not as to be seen by men, that the Pharisees were doing things to be seen by men, they were want, and, and thus they got their reward. They got their man's reward. They got their applause. Hey, you guys are really spiritual. Wow, you're just so awesome. They, they got their reward. Missed out on the greater reward because they love themselves. Jesus taught his disciples this. And the way that Jesus is going to answer uh, these disciples of John now, I mean, just notice, it's going to be like one of those wow kind of moments. It, it, this is one of those truly, in a unique way, truly one of those breathtaking kind of moments, the way in which Jesus uh, goes about answering the question here to these disciples of John. It couldn't be more beautiful. Um, Jesus is going to use the same analogy in and very similar language as did John the Baptist when pointing them out to them of their need of following him and uh, of making him and understanding him as being the Messiah. I mean, it's truly, it's truly remarkable. Notice this in verse 15. Jesus said to them, Can the attendants of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, again, we need to see this, what Jesus says here in 9.15, and remember John's words that we just looked at, which were in John 3.29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And so now we can just kind of put them together. There in John 3.29, this is what John again had said to his disciples about who Jesus was and why he must decrease and why he must increase and I can't think uh, that these disciples of John, when hearing Jesus say these words in, in what we, have we recorded here in 915, their hearts, it would seem to me, must have lit on fire. That Jesus is using the exact same analogy and almost similar language in communicating to them that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And think about for a second how progressive John's statement is here in John the one, his statement there in John chapter 3, verse 29, analogously referring to Jesus as the bridegroom who has come for and in some sense, as it says here, has the bride. A not so clear reference, if you will, to the church, the bride of Christ, that which is new, that which is going to be new, that which will be inaugurated with the giving of something new, a new covenant at the shedding of Christ's blood there at the cross of Calvary and the forming of one new man, beginning of that which was new, and how John, and by extension his disciples, here in this passage as friends of the bridegroom, says they rejoice greatly at the hearing of Jesus' teaching and preaching. This is what John said he did. He rejoiced greatly upon hearing Jesus' teaching and his preaching. John said as a result of, of this, that his joy, he said there that his joy, this joy of mine, has been made full. You might say complete, a fullness of joy. Because John as a Jew and together with the rest of the entire Jewish people have been awaiting something, haven't they? They've been awaiting the, the, the coming of their Messiah, their King, their Christ, whose kingdom would be Filled with and followed by what? Great rejoicing. Great rejoicing. John is here prophetically telling us that Jesus' coming kingdom is going to be something new, namely a bride, and that those who see this truth about Jesus and his new message will be those who are also full of joy, just like he was. Very few words, condensed 
very powerful statements being made. And notice again how Jesus used this same language. Again, I I just try to walk in their shoes and the excitement that they must have had hearing, hearing Jesus say to them, can the attendance of the bridegroom more? Why do your disciples, why aren't they fasting like the Pharisees and us? Can the attendance of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them? It doesn't seem like a direct answer to their initial question, but when you parlay that together with what John had previously told them and that why they needed to look to Jesus and he's decreasing and he must increase, that I'm just the forerunner, he's the Christ. Jesus is in essence saying to John's disciples in a way that he didn't do with the scribes and he didn't do with the Pharisees, and it would seem because John's disciples are those perhaps coming with somewhat of a genuine heart of interest and understanding what's going on and who this man is. Perhaps they had a little titular understanding of the things that he's been doing and what he's about. And Jesus speaks these very words that John the Baptist said to him. It had to have rung a bell in their mind. They were, their, their hearts must have just lit up in their heart like, oh my goodness, it, this, this man must be the Christ. That, at least that's the way I kind of feel like I would have responded if I had hooves on the ground. I hope that's how I would have responded. Sometimes you got to learn, you got, you got to do this when you, you got to kind of walk through the Bible with these people when you're reading and studying and try to feel it, try to get your emotions there. What, how, how, would, this, how would this have hit you if you had been there and had heard this? I, I think it's one of the most beautiful things that I can imagine having heard Jesus almost perfectly reiterate what John had previously said to us. And here in verse 15, these attendants being Jesus' disciples, Jesus is saying, uh, how is it possible for the attendants of the bridegroom to be mournful? And this mournful concept here is connected with that of fasting, like the, the traditions of man and that of fasting is, is truly a mournful thing because after all, do we not like to eat food? I mean, food is a pleasurable thing, is it not? There's going to be a a wedding feast of the Lamb, and it's going to be a great time of feasting and celebration with the Lord Jesus Christ. Food is a good thing. Fasting was to be used very particular, as Jesus told us from the Sermon on the Mount in connection with the Day of Atonement. And while we fast and while we grieve and groan over the lack of food, it's to remind us of something of a spiritual nature for which we can then pray, and that was the purpose of fasting. It wasn't to be some traditional thing that you do twice a week because that's what you do. That's mournful. That's not joyful. John was saying that when Jesus came, it made him joyful. The coming of this new covenant that's about to come, it's a a joyful covenant. It's full of rejoicing, not mournful. It's not possible, Jesus is saying, for the attendance of the bridegroom to mourn while the proceedings of the marriage feast are taking place. It's a time of rejoicing, a time of great joy, a time of fullness of joy for those who, like John, are able to see that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. How joyful that must be for those Jews if, like John, had they had their eyes, their spiritual eyes open to recognize that he is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament passages. Would that not fill your heart with joy? Well, of course it would, even if they threw you in prison. That's a joy that cannot be taken away by human circumstances, as bad as they may seem, because you know that God has sent his son, the Messiah, and his kingdom has come and is coming. That fills a heart full of joy. John says his heart was His joy was made complete. And so it seems Jesus gives them every reason to see and understand and believe in everything John the Baptist had told them first. And then, as a prophet would, Jesus foretells of his future impending death and how that day will be a time for fasting. Look at the end of verse 15. But the days will come Jesus being prophetic, future tense. Days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And if they, like John, believe Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, might have picked up on the not-so-subtle connection with Isaiah's description of the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53 which is, we know, is one of the 
was one of the main stumbling blocks for the Jews and the Jewish nation in accepting Jesus because they had no cons. They, they, they did not make connection. They're, they had a misunderstanding of the application of Isaiah 53's words. They, those weren't words that were to be applicable to their Messiah, the, their coming king who was going to have a kingdom full of joy and rejoicing. The, the Isaiah 53 piece was a major stumbling block for them where it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That, for the transgression of my people, striking was due to him. Let's try to make a quick connection with this similar language here in Isaiah 53.8. He was taken away. In Matthew, Jesus said, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, cut off out of the land of the living. This cut off language right here is very similar to what we see in Daniel's prophecy of, of, that, of Messiah being cut off. A lot of, a lot of connections here that had these Jewish nation had their spiritual eyes open to see, we, we have the benefit, do we not, of progressive revelation? We have the benefit of progressive revelation, but yet we still have a lot of people that can't see the obvious connections. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not an intellectual exercise. Saving faith isn't an intellectual exercise at the end of the day. At the end of the day, um, it's God who causes growth. God has to remove spiritually blind eyes. And that's why we, um, who choose to follow Jesus and understand that it's going to be a hard road to follow and it's going to be difficult and not a lot of appreciation, you're going to be faced with winds and waves and storms and sometimes even really uh, angry, demon-possessed kind of people that are telling you that your understanding of, of human sexuality and gender is not what is norm today. This is norm, and if you don't come around and see you following me here a little bit? You see, when you take a stand for God and, and his simple ways and what he says, you're, you're going to find yourself at the end of that spear. It's just going to happen. Jesus prophesying that that day is coming when he's going to be taken away. And then, guess what? And then they'll fast. And Jesus taught his disciples, hey, there's a need for fasting. But now when the bridegroom is with the bride and the attendants are with the bride, now's not a time for fasting, Jesus is telling John's disciples. Now's a time for rejoicing. Now's a time for rejoicing. John the Baptist, he articulated himself in the presence of Jesus and hearing his teaching. His, his joy was made full. And then, as if drawing from John's analogy of Jesus being the bridegroom of his bride, the church, Jesus gives two parables both of which teach about all a bit veiled or cloaked from what I call unredeemed eyes of how the behavior of his disciples are actually reflective of joy that is equated with the coming of Messiah and the inauguration of his new covenant. Notice verse 16 and verse 17. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results nor do people put new wine into old wineskins otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved both of these parables are designed to teach of a new and joyful God-ordained pattern of relationship that is to be attended with the coming of this bridegroom who has come for his bride, the church. As such newness and joy, it's going to supplant those old traditions. And we could even insert here, it's going to supplant an old covenant with a new covenant. And such fasting, which was part of these old traditions, and other such traditions associated with the works-based righteousness that scribes and Pharisees were known to do, there's something new that's coming 
and it's going to supplant that which was old. Now, again, to see um, this requires eyes of faith. And so when Jesus teaching this to John's disciples, or anybody who might have been hearing, this would have been cloaked and veiled in such a way that had they not had eyes of faith to really make the connections, they would not be able to see. This would not be discernible. Again, notice verse 16 in isolation. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. The simple understanding of this is that no reasonable person would patch up an old garment with a piece of unshrunk new cloth, for the simple reason that when you do that, that new cloth is going to shrink, and then the old brittle cloth is going to tear away, and the hole is going to get worse. It's really that simple. The old cloth has gotten old. It needs to be replaced. It's old and brittle. You can't mix the new with it. Which, by the way, there are some that like to think that this something new, the, the church, is just a continuation of that which was old. And it seems to me that the parables that Jesus teaches here is very clear that the church is not a continuation of Israel. The church is something new. It's a new man. It's a new entity. It's a church. It's Christ's bride. It's not the old. It is that which will be new. We see this again repeated in a similar way in verse 17, the second parable. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. The both preserved there is the wine and the wine skins some commentators like to wrongly suggest that the both being preserved there is the old wine skins get preserved because they didn't get burst because you put the new wine into the new wine skins and see the old wine the old coven is still preserved and thus it's a the new is a fulfillment of the old this is one of the Sneaky ways that I think exegetical work is done poorly in a passage like this. Clearly what's going to be poured out from the bursting of the old wineskins is going to be the new wine. Does, and not to be too hyperbolically analogous here, but new wine, does that maybe ring any kind of a bell? This concept of Jesus and a coming new kingdom and new wine. And it, it does have the overtones of... The, the newness of what Jesus is bringing, does it not? This one new man. John was very progressive in his statement. He said that, that he referred to the bridegroom have, already having his bride. Now, in that culture, they may have just been thinking about a normal wedding. A bridegroom takes a bride in a wedding context. But we have progressive revelation. We have the rest of the New Testament to understand that John here was speaking about something that was still yet to come of the church. Jesus. So both being preserved here, what's being preserved is the new wine, this, this, the new covenant, the new life, the new relationship that people are going to have through Jesus Christ with the only true and living God. And we're all together as one in a body, as the bride. Analogously, maybe seen here as that which is held in these wine skins. New wine, obviously, still fermenting some causes wineskins to stretch and anybody in the business of dealing with wine knew that it knew at the at the point in which you could no longer use old wineskins they 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 it, they knew and they knew if they poured new wine again into this in, into this into these wineskins it's going to destroy the skins you're going to lose your wine now what are you going to be most sad about losing the wine or the skins well you don't eat the skins you drink the wine i mean you're going to you're going to be Truly sorry if you lose the wine. So again, the, the bursting of the skins, you would, maybe if you want to reuse some old skins, put some old wine in them. The, the old wine has already finished its frothing about and its fermenting and its stretching capacity. So if you want to keep those old wine skins, just pour some old wine back in them. And then enjoy that old wine because as they say, old wine is fine. Sometimes it's the best. That doesn't fit this analogy, though, so forget that. <laughs> In both parables, Jesus shows the incompatibility of that which is new with that which is old. And while we rely on, again, progressive revelation to have a fuller understanding of what Jesus is teaching here, it's clear in light of New Testament revelation that he's showing, Jesus is showing us here that his 
coming as the bridegroom is in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which, by the way, what did Matthew show us in chapters 1 through 4? That Jesus' coming was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Without question, he shows us that. And it's nothing less, now this coming of Jesus is nothing less than the fulfillment of the promised new covenant. And this new covenant attended with the coming of Jesus, this bridegroom isn't going to simply be a patchwork for that which mends up an old covenant previously rejected by the nation of Israel. Remember, the new covenant that we're going to see here in Jeremiah 31, if you go back a couple of chapters, which I, didn't, I don't have time to do, I need to wrap this up as it is, but if you go back a few chapters from the new covenant, or maybe just a chapter, what, what do we see in the context of Jeremiah before we get to the new covenant? Oh, we see there that God is referring to the nation of Israel as an adulterous nation. And guess what God does with his adulterous nation? God writes them a certificate of divorce and sends them away. Old covenant, broken. Old covenant, obsolete. But what does he say almost immediately, just a, just a chapter later in chapter 31? He says, but I'm not finished with my true chosen people yet. I'm going to marry myself to them, but this time with a new covenant. And the new covenant's going to be different than that old covenant. It's not going to be used as a patch to simply patch over the old covenant. There's going to be something new in this new covenant that's going to be different than the old covenant that's actually going to be workable. And you know what that is? It's new hearts. God writing his law now on hearts, not on tablets of stone. God converting people in their hearts and giving people from their hearts a love for him. Notice, behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, but I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the new covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after these days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. This new is not going to simply try to patch up the old. It would just simply fail. It would make things worse. I'm going to put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <laughs> Praise God for new covenants. Praise God for new hearts, and it's for this reason that Jesus, the bridegroom, is the complete fulfillment of the old covenant as we saw in Matthew's writing earlier on he fulfilled the law he didn't he didn't uh, simply come to be a continuation of the old emphasis being on fulfillment he's the fulfillment of the law and as such Jesus is also the beginning of a new covenant in the shedding of his blood for the free forgiveness of sins at the cross of Christ at Calvary are you are you seeing with me how in chapter 9, 14 through 17, we, we have some really condensed information packed into four small verses. Really three, if you think about it. 15, 16, and 17. That's very informative. That seems to be letting the training of the 12, these training of these disciples that are understanding that it's going to be difficult to do ministry in the life of following Jesus but it's like a reaffirmation for them. But listen, guys, I am the Christ. I'm the, I'm the God who came from heaven who's, at whose right hand is fullness of joy. And in following me, you will find fullness of joy that you will find nowhere else, nowhere else offered in this world. It will be in me. Hard circumstances come, yes, but your heart will be filled with a joy and an overflowing of, a, of love for God that you never experienced before because Jesus is that overwhelming fountain of life that continues to spring forth within our hearts because he's going to write his laws. He's going to change our hearts. He will be our God and we will be his people. A little detail that I don't have the time to get into this morning is simply in 33, a covenant that I'm going to cut with the house of Israel. 
There's some theological strands out there that says the new covenant is exclusively for the house of Israel and it's exclusively going to be fulfilled in the future millennial kingdom. There's so many reasons there's a misunderstanding in that. I don't have time to delineate on that now. That, that might be a good excursus later or even set up for a class in a Bible institute at some point. Okay? But with the coming of Christ and conversions, when God, his spirit indwells us as his people and we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, he, put, he gives us new hearts with a love for God in them with affirmations and desires to be pleasing to God within our hearts. Not simply because we read a book. We read the book to know what we need to do, but there's something within our hearts. There's within my heart a melody. Jesus whispers sweet and low. Right? And you, and you, you can't fake that. Either, you, either you've got that or you don't. And Jesus is letting us know. He led his disciples. He's letting, if you will, he's letting those old traditionalists, scribes, Pharisees, he's letting anybody know, yeah, it's going to be hard following me. And you're probably not going to have the eyes to see this now, but you might later if God shows you mercy. But he's letting John's disciples, he's letting his disciples know that this is who I am. This is who I am. Following me is going to be hard. I'm prepping you for ministry. And let me tell you, church, he's prepping you for ministry. Churches gather, they're given pastors, teachers for what? The equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. You need to go out of this place. You come in here as if, as if around a campfire and you get warmed up and you get encouraged. But let me tell you, when you go out there, it's not going to be so easy. Unless you're quiet, unless you hide it under a bushel. If you just hide it under a bushel, nobody's going to bother you. Hide it under a bushel. Come on. Hide it under a bushel? No, we're going to let it shine. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may glorify your Father who's in heaven on the day of his visitation. We, like Matthew, we need to be having our friends, our, our tax collectors, and sinners over and finding creative ways to introduce them to Jesus. Amen? This passage, though small and very dense it has tremendous application for when we walk out these doors and we leave with a clearer understanding of who jesus is and how he has changed our lives and he was this is a again this is one of the most beautiful four little little pericope unit of thought that um that i see in matthew's gospel